If you're not reading your Bible, you're wrong. And we're going to walk through the Ben Shapiro, John MacArthur interview. Needless to say, it's a bit disappointing. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. We have the same God as Jews and Christians. He is the one true creator God, the one true living God. He has a seity. That is, he is eternal by his own nature. He is uncreated, the uncreated one. We believe he is, he is more than one person in one God. That's why Genesis says, let us make man in our own image. And relationship comes from a God who has relationship within himself. No, don't be afraid. I'm sure that I can fix it when I figure out the physics. My evil plan to save the world. So I came across a very interesting Bible passage I've read many times but never paid attention to. And we're going to cover that. And it deals with slavery. And then we're going to walk through the Ben Shapiro Sunday special with John MacArthur. Was very hopeful for this interview, uh, but was but was disappointed, and we'll get to that. But before we do, I want to tell you about Amelda and the Kibos board folks took took a trip over to uh, to Kenya and to Kibos Hope Academy, and they wrote some letters. Uh, of thanks for for their service over there, and and, and Amelda doesn't doesn't speak English. She only writes in Swahili, and, and this was translated. But here's here's what she said. She said, "Thanks a lot for giving me this paper to write on. I love God for He is my Creator." Uh, since Monday, when the when the team arrived, we have heard uh, the good news from the Lord. I am happy because God brought uh, you to us in this amazing visit to share the gospel with us. I have witnessed real love during this period. So, Rick, one of the board members of the Kibos Hope Academy, shared these letters of love that they received from the children at Kibos Hope Academy when they went and visited there. And it's... It's it's touching and and heartbreaking that Amelda here is is thanking Rick for for the paper to write this on, and I just can't imagine what a well would mean to to somebody like like Amelda to to have um, the access to to that resource. So again, another impassioned plea to for you to please give. And, and, you know, I'm not ashamed to, to, to bring these children forward and, and share their stories with you about how grateful they are to have what they have there and that we could provide something to them that would just be so overwhelmingly, overwhelming, overwhelmingly amazing. So please do consider giving to the Kenya Wall Project. Again, we have the monthly donation available $10 a month and the uh, one-time uh, $50 gift. So so I hope you'll consider uh, giving for somebody who thinks that having paper to write on is a blessing. Just uh, speechless by uh, f- from this letter. So at any rate, that's, that's why we're doing this. Because 
the the greatest blessing in a child's life shouldn't be the fact that they have paper to write on. They they should have water, and and we we can do something to affect this. And I and my hope is that we will. Okay, so we're gonna cover uh, part of my Bible reading. I read I do read the Bible, folks. I just don't preach at you about reading the Bible. And I came across Exodus twenty one. Which, quite honestly, I've read the Bible many times, all the way through, front to back. I do it a couple times a year. Uh, did it many times when I was an evangelical. I've, I've read the Bible, and I just never paid attention to Exodus 21, and we're going to cover that. Deals with slavery. Then, we're going to turn to the John MacArthur, Ben Shapiro interview, which I had high hopes for. Um... And it just, it was weird. It was just very dissatisfying, disappointing. I thought MacArthur could perhaps bring some clarity to some of this. And unfortunately, uh, he didn't. He, he brought more confusion, uh, in my estimation, than, than, than is warranted. And, and it's really based on his theological presuppositions. And we'll get to... All of that. So, again, let's start with the idea of let's read our Bibles. This is something that the Reformation afforded to human history. The opportunity to have a copy of Holy Scripture in our vernacular. And we don't take advantage of it in our day and time. I mean, we have copies of Holy Scripture sitting on our shelves collecting dust that we never read. And unfortunately, this is not a new thing. This pretty much happened quickly upon the heels of the Reformation. We gave people the Scriptures in their vernacular, and instead of choosing to read it, they chose to trust their own reason instead. They just completely abandoned the idea. And so, a couple of pleas, you know, first and foremost is to give money to the Well Project at Kibosov Academy, and the other plea is to read your Bible. Had Enlightenment men done this, I think the world would be a much different place than it is today. A much different place. So, we're going to cover that, we're going to cover the... MacArthur Shapiro interview and we're not going to gild the lily any further let's get to it Exodus 21, 1 and following. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free, for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, 
I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But the slave that survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go out free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now I bring this up for one very basic reason. If you don't read your Bible, you're wrong. This is essentially the, along with all of the other doctrines of the Reformation, this is a very basic one that we should take advantage of. The fact that Holy Scripture was put in the vernacular of us common people and we can read it. And if you're not taking advantage of that, you're wrong. And it didn't take very long, as we'll see, for people to not take advantage of the fact that they had access to Holy Scripture. They could read it, study it, and learn how to live. This is exemplified by chattel slavery in the antebellum South. Western chattel slavery. People didn't know their Bibles. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because, hey, hey, guess where I found this? In my Bible reading. It was just a passage of scripture that I have overlooked for years, honestly, and really didn't pay attention to carefully enough. So let's go through this and compare what Holy Scripture prescribes as quote-unquote slavery, and I put that in quotes for a reason we'll get to later, how slavery, again, quote-unquote, in Scripture compares to the chattel slavery of the antebellum South and Western slavery. First of all, note that these are some of the first details after the Decalogue is given, the proper treatment of quote-unquote slaves. First of all, it prescribes that a slave shall serve no longer than seven years versus the Western lifetime servitude of a chattel slave. It prescribes that if a man comes in married, he goes out married versus the separation of families that chattel slavery often prescribed. Marriage and family formation are encouraged in the Bible among its quote-unquote slaves versus marriage and family formation essentially being outlawed in Western chattel slavery. 
Note that if a master gives a, uh, gives a slave a wife, they must stay after the seven years. This incentivizes marriage to say that if, if, if you have a, a good master and he gives, he, he says, hey, I really like you. You're a good employee. And that's the term we're ultimately going to get to instead of slave. That, that term should be stricken really from the biblical record and replaced with employee because that's essentially what we're talking about here. And we're and we're going to get that get to that in, in the MacArthur interview. That's one of the good the good points in the uh, MacArthur interview with Ben Shapiro. That you, you have this. I mean, wouldn't this be great if you were a young buck, you started working for a guy, and you were a good employee, and he says, "Hey, I've got another employee that uh, I think would make a good wife for you," and they put you together. They do some matchmaking, and Lo and behold, it works out. It This sort of thing incentivizes family formation. This is unheard of in Western chattel slavery. Note also, and I emphasize this as I read the passage, that women have special privileges when it, when it comes to slavery. Masters must free female slaves he doesn't like versus beat them or rape them. He must free, if, if he brings in a female slave and he's like, I don't really like this slave for whatever reason, employee, I should say, then he has to free them. Also, the female slaves can marry into the master's family. This is this is a big deal, especially for somebody maybe who was widowed. See, the, the Bible doesn't allow that. It doesn't allow women to be cast out on the street. If, if a woman was uh, lost her husband either through divorce or uh, death, she was widowed, this was the provision for that woman to be cared for and that the master could matchmake in that situation. But for some reason, if the master didn't like the woman's slave, she must go out free. Now, let's not overlook that. When we're talking about the, the year of Jubilee and freeing slaves, it wasn't just that you kicked them out on the street and said, hey, you're free, you're, go your merry way. That's not how slavery worked in the Bible. If you freed a slave... First of all, all their debt was canceled. That means if the slave owed the money to the master, that debt was canceled. If the slave owed the money to somebody else, the master had to pay that debt. On top of that, they weren't just sent out onto the street with nothing. They were sent out with provision. The year of Jubilee specifically prescribes this, that they're given enough money to make a fresh start. So to free a slave, a woman, if you're not happy with her for some reason... And the prescription is you must free her. You've got to pay her debt and you've got to set her on her way with enough provision so she can get her own business started. Now get this. Death to anyone who steals men for slaves versus kidnapping Africans and shipping them halfway around the world. Death to anyone who steals men for slaves. This is exactly what went on in Western chattel slavery. We would go to Africa, find vulnerable people, capture them, and ship them halfway across the world. This was strictly forbidden in Holy Scripture. Death to the person who did this. And notice that it doesn't just prescribe this for the Jews. This prescribes this for any situation. If, if a Jewish person 
were to go off and capture people uh, of another nation and turn them into slaves, that is a that is a that is an offense punishable by death. Finally, abuse and murder of slaves is forbidden versus abuse and murder of slaves common. If a slave died from a beating, the master dies. It's a capital offense. If the slave doesn't die from a beating, uh, the master's still liable for the, view, the abuse. Look at the next verses. I mean, please look at the next verses. This happens all the time. People pull these things out of context. The new atheists are known for this. They pull these things out of context. They say, see, see right here, this is, this is terrible. If the slave is a, if the slave is abused, he is to be set free. If he loses an eye, loses a tooth, and the understanding of this law, the spirit of this law, is that if if the slave was abused to a point he was he was physically, uh, you you just can't abuse slaves, or they get set free. And if you kill them, you're going to be executed. So the bottom line is, if the slave dies, the, max, the master is executed. If the slave lives after the beating, the slave goes free. So you don't beat or abuse your slaves, according to these laws. So what's the point here? Well, first of all, again, read your Bibles. We've been granted the privilege. Uh, and if you're like most of us in America, we've got probably a stack of Bibles sitting at home that's collecting dust. You need to read your Bible. And... That advice, had it been taken by Enlightenment men in the West, this sort of thing never would have come up. Enlightenment men in the West were like Sam Harris and, and Richard Dawkins when it comes to their Bibles. They, they did a cursory reading of it, and in that cursory reading of it, even if, even if they did that, used it as an excuse for chattel slavery, slavery to continue. To continue on as it did. These Enlightenment men were largely deists. They weren't Christians. They might have, you know, shown up to, of course, they would have shown up to church. This was just a cultural practice. But in reality, they believed there was a God, but that he didn't have much to say or, or much advice to give. The Bible was looked at as, by this time, was looked at as kind of a mystical, you know, superstitious type of document and was not consulted for everyday life. Had those men consulted this passage and taken it seriously, they never would have done what they did to the African slaves that were brought here. And these were Enlightenment men. It was only the Judeo-Christian values that abolished slavery. That were that were that were pushed forth to abolish slavery. That's what abolished slavery. It wasn't reason. Pure reason would tell you that you can treat somebody that you consider to be less than a human being however you want. In fact, pure reason would tell you that if you see somebody of another skin pigmentation, you can just go ahead and consider that and they live in a primitive fashion, etc., etc. You can just consider them to be less and then you can abuse them with slavery. So I, w- I want to kind of keep putting this sort of thing out there because, again, I w- people should be reading their Bible. And I wonder what America would be like, especially when it comes to racial relations these days, which is, as you all know, 
is a very deep concern of mine. It's something I care very, very deeply about. What slave relations or what uh, what race relations would have been like had people taken the opportunity that the Reformation gave them to read their Bibles instead of abandon their Bibles. See, that's that's human nature. When we're given the opportunity to study and read God's Word for ourselves instead of having a pope dictate to dictate to us what the meaning of it is we just instead of taking that opportunity we take the other option and just decide not to read it and study it and understand it for what it says anyway just came across that in my own bible reading and felt like it deserved a bit of a rant here at the front of the podcast let's move on to the ben shapiro john macarthur interview ordained of God. That does not mean that every ruler represents God. Clearly that is not the case. But that governmental authority is a God-given institution to repress evil and to reward good behavior, just as parents have that role and the conscience has that role we've talked about. Uh, so when I, when I talk about the government, um, I'm, I'm not saying that the government is a divine authority or that the rulers are divine authorities. But what I am saying is that they represent a God-given constraint to human behavior. And that's why they have to be upheld and not broken down. So Christians don't attack the government. We don't protest. We don't riot. We don't start shooting people who are in the government. Even if the government is King George from England and we don't like him, and even if we're upset with taxation, we don't start riots and we don't start revolutions. We live quiet according to the New Testament, peaceable lives. We pray for those that are over us. We pray for rulers. We pray for all those who are in authority. We pray that they might come to know God through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray regularly for our rulers. We do not overthrow them. And that is how a Christian, a real biblical Christian, would look at the, at the American Revolution. I mean, I hate to say that because that's not a popular idea. But it is nonetheless what the scripture says Christians are to do. Submit, pray, pray for the salvation of your leaders, live a quiet and peaceable life, and let the the character of your life, the godliness, the virtue of your life affect that society one soul at a time. So what does that mean for you? Okay, so there's a lot to agree with here. We have to be super careful when it comes to considering revolution, but let me throw this at you. A couple of scenarios here. Millions of unborn babies killed. Do we take up arms in that situation? I would. My considered guess is, if I were to ask John MacArthur, if he happened upon somebody who was getting ready to murder a baby, would it be Christian to intervene in that situation? And, and to stop if that person from murdering the baby, uh, even if physical force was required. See, this is where you get these people thinking they need to murder abortion doctors. And Christians have said, no, that's not how we're going to proceed with this. We're going to proceed like like MacArthur's prescribing. And I think that's that's absolutely correct. I think that's the, the best way to proceed is to win hearts and minds in, in that debate. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a sticky subject. There's, there's probably more to that notion than we really give credence to, but... I think that is the correct biblical prescription without going into all the hairy details of it. But, when if the police come to take your children because, say, your son is telling you that he's really a girl 
and that he wants to become a girl. And then you say, no, son, you're not a girl. You're a little boy, and you're going to be a little boy. And then he reports you to the police, who then come and attempt to take your son from you by force because they consider that to be child abuse. We're not far from that at this point in time. Uh, adoption agencies are penalized in, in these fashions. What do you do then? Personally, me, if the police came to my door to take my son because I wouldn't allow him to believe that he's a little girl, they would be met at, with the point of a gun. That's just my, and I think I would be biblically mandated to do that as a protection to one of my children. Now, maybe the difference is I'm protecting my own children versus protecting you know others' children, uh, other people's children. You know, it's specifically prescribed in Holy Scripture that we protect our families. That a man is not a man unless he protects his family. But what if you know? We could go on with the examples. What if the government forces your wife to abort a baby? What if the government forces you to abandon faith? Is pacifism there? Is armed defense allowed? If the government comes in, the the military, the police, whatever, and they want to confiscate your Bibles, they want to break up your uh, Bible study that you're having underground, are you allowed to defend yourself? These were kind of the terms of the revolution in a lot of ways. Maybe uh, Aquinas might be applicable here, where we talk about just war. Where we consider the terms, all the terms of the war, and we say, is this war justified biblically? That that's where I would take it, and that's one thing. That's the oversight I think MacArthur's making here is is that there are just revolutions, and you think about the the Revolutionary War, was it justified? Well, maybe, maybe not, but it did bring in about another authoritative government. So the question kind of has to be asked: We we live under a government that MacArthur would say, Christ, in a Christian sense, illegitimately overthrew a rightful authority. So if the American government is in place and it and it got its power by illegitimately overthrowing another power, then is that legitimate? So it opens up this entire can of worms. It's it's a difficult question, I think, to answer answer in a in a short interview and in, in one of the questions. But th- but this surprised me about MacArthur for him to say that the American Revolution was not a just revolution. I would say it was. I would say this is a revolution that Christians could have in good conscience participated in. Because, essentially, if you understand how the Revolutionary War came about, we we refused to pay taxes, we declared our independence, and then the Crown didn't like that and sent troops. And that, are we allowed to defend ourselves under those circumstances where we are doing what what we believe is right and we're proceeding from, from that basis and then the authorities come to attack us and we defend ourselves because that's essentially what happened you know the, the the troops were sent from England to get the colonies in order and back under the the authority of the crown and the the people rallied and, and defended themselves I would say that the American Revolution was a just revolution because not only were they, were they defending those things they were defending things like freedom of religion and these sorts of things. And that, that was probably one of the primary things 
that the revolution was defending was freedom of religion, where the crown wasn't going to dictate the, to the people in the colonies the type of religion. So I, I would say the revolution was was a just revolution. We could debate that. That's, But for, for MacArthur to say carte blanche that no revolution is ever just sounds a little pacifistic pacifistic to me and a little along the lines of, of what the Keswicks really would have ascribed to and and that's that's a bit surprising uh, just wanted to point that out and, and interact with it let's uh, let's go on to see some more of the more controversial things that I believe MacArthur says in this interview when uh, Christianity comes and the church is founded the, the church flourishes in the first century uh, by, by the time you get to the third century and you, you get Constantine, you, you have organizational Christianity, institutional Christianity. They decide that everybody's going to be a Christian, so they baptize all the babies, and everybody is a Christian, and, and you have uh, essentially state-sponsored Christianity. Uh, that launches a thousand years of the Dark Ages, where religion and relationship to God is not personal. The church is a surrogate. Uh, it's a surrogate for God and you connect to the church. You don't connect by faith. You don't connect in, in your heart by loving the Lord or knowing Him. You connect by mechanical means and all the falderall that made up that thousand years of developing um, uh, Christianity where wherever there's a shortage of reality, there's an overabundance of symbol. So they started dressing like you know they were going to a five-year-old club, five-year-old's birthday party as a clown. Um, and you had this institutionalized kind of Christianity that was dead, cold, and the gospel was lost and truth was lost, but it had massive power over people. And what kept that power was don't put the Bible in their language. Don't let them read it. The church is the only interpreter of the Bible. They can't interpret Scripture. If anybody tried to do the interpretation on their own, they, they would be murdered. Uh, we know the story of William Tyndale. He translates the Bible into English. They chase him all over the place till they finally kill him. What was his crime? Translating the Bible into the language of the people so that every, quote, plowboy in England could read the Scripture. That is a crime that brings down that kind of false system. Okay, so needless to say, I'm going to disagree with MacArthur's historiography here. He's talking, first of all, he's talking about third century third century is the year 200 he, i think he really meant fourth century but we can we can let that slide what about augustine a, a most of or a good deal of the church's foundational doctrines were developed after constantine not only legalized christianity in 313 by the edict of milan but made christianity the state religion we and Augustine had a lot to do with this, but we also we set down the Nicene Creed. We understood the Trinity in its in its fullness, and, and um, we established the notion of the biblical notion of the Triune God with Athanasian against Arius. We defeated Arianism. We had Augustine come along, so Christianity benefited a lot from state-sponsored religion. Now, would I re- agree with MacArthur that we sh- that state-sponsored religion generally is a bad idea? Yes, I I would agree with that. But to to pin the dark ages on organized religion 
and men dressing like clowns. Incidentally, the reason the church has traditionally employed vestments is because when Christianity, the church, uh, you know, well, really, when, when, when Christ came on the scene, that's the time they wanted to commemorate. So they dress like Romans. That's essentially what vestments were is men dressing like Romans to say that, hey, this is the time when Christ came on the scene. And this is how people dressed. And if it was a, a special occasion, it was very ornate, etc., etc. The vestments have a lot of Christological meaning behind them. It teaches the gospel in many, many ways that I'm not going to go into. But, but to deem it as dressing like clowns is quite pejorative, I would say. Uh, to, to say that uh, baptizing babies came about when Christianity was legalized is completely false. That's historically completely inaccurate. We have many, many accounts uh, of infant baptism before the legalization of Christianity. These are not the things that brought about the Dark Ages, but what this is, is essentially something that reminds me of Alfred North Whitehead. And this is our primary, he was our guru at the Claremont School of Theology, and lest you forget, the Claremont School of Theology is is a school of quote-unquote theology, which is on the hairy left edge of Methodism. And here's what Alfred North Whitehead said, and it sounds a lot like what MacArthur's trying to put forth here. Whitehead said, When the Western world accepted Christianity, Caesar conquered, and the received text of Western theology was edited by his lawyers. The brief Galilean vision of humanity flickered throughout the ages uncertainly, but the deeper idolatry of the fashioning of God in the image of the Egyptian, Persian, Persian, and Roman imperial rulers was retained. The church gave unto God the attributes which belonged exclusively to Caesar. There is, in the Galilean origin of Christianity, yet another suggestion which does not fit in very well. It does not emphasize the ruling Caesar or the ruthless moralist or the unmoved mover. It dwells upon the tender elements in the world which slowly and in quietness operate by love and it finds purpose in the present immediacy of a kingdom not of this world. Love neither rules nor is it unmoved. That is perhaps, I don't want to be too heavy handed here, but a pretty good summation of what MacArthur just handed to us. Baptizing babies led to the Dark Ages? And it was only instituted after Constantine? What possibly could have led to the Dark Ages besides institutional Christianity sponsored by the state? Well, let's look at history. In the 7th century, you have the rise of Islam pushing what was the remnants of the Roman Empire to the West. That's really how Christianity came to the West. Constantine legalized it, made it the the religion of the, the empire. The, uh, th- those in the East, Islam rose, over the, the quote barbarians overthrew the Roman Empire, Rome fell, this was d- even during the time of Augustine. Stuff got pushed West by war. And the, the, the civilized world, as it had been known for centuries, at least for decades, was being destroyed. 
Well, really, centuries is better. For centuries, the civilized world was being completely remade. It was chaos. And the chaos that ensued from the Western, from the world itself being completely remade by, by these forces pushing and pulling stuff around and ultimately destroying the Roman Empire is what caused the Dark Ages. That, I think, is a more accurate summation of the historiography here. And it's astonishing to me that MacArthur proclaims that none of this has been solved until 21st century Christianity came along and instituted believer's baptism. This this was not the fault of institutional Christianity sponsored by the state. This is a fog of war thing. The, The church was trying to hang on to its power Rome was trying to hang on to its power, and they used all means necessary to do that, including keeping the scriptures out of the hands of the people. I'll agree with MacArthur there. At some point in time, it was decided that the Pope was the only one that could interpret scripture. Incidentally, um, scripture put into the vernacular of the common people wasn't even viewed as a necessity because most people were illiterate. It was it was it was a dark time. And yes, Tyndale was seen as a threat. These things happen. People try to hang on to the power. I get it. Institutions get corrupted. But to blame the Dark Ages uh, on the fact that Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire and was sponsored by the state, I don't I don't think holds water. Does it it just doesn't follow. It's not good historiography. It's most historians would demonstrate that the fall of the Roman Empire and the chaos that ensued really is what brought on the Dark Ages. It wasn't the fact that people were dressing like clowns and baptizing babies that caused the Dark Ages. That's just historically not tenable. It's it's not a it's it's a non sequitur. It just it just simply doesn't follow. There there were there were. Uh, forces in play there that were much stronger than something like that. Uh, much stronger. It, it doesn't boil down to the fact that the institutional church as conceived in the 4th century uh, didn't allow people to have a personal relationship with God and allow them to decide on their own whether or not they wanted to follow Christ. That's not what caused these historical forces to, to culminate. Um, yes, was the institutional church corrupt? Yes, it was. But you're talking about a time of chaos that would have caused anybody to grab onto any bit of power they possibly could have. And that, it happened. And we needed the Reformation. And we needed to, to bring uh, uh, to, to put the scriptures in the vernacular of the people and these sorts of things that a lot of them read it. We talked about that a little bit ago. Uh, but even though uh, that happened. We put we put the scriptures in the vernacular to people, and we started to educate people. And by the way, um, Christianity did bring about the notion of, of educating people so they could read and write and these sorts of things. All that stuff didn't help people to start reading their Bibles. It really didn't. Not on a massive scale. Otherwise, like I said in the outset, um, Western chattel slavery would have never come about. Anyway, I, MacArthur is just way off here, in my opinion. Uh, he's right on some things, but but the notion that institutional Christianity is sponsored by the state is just not 
again, I'm surprised by this. This is this is Claremont School of Theology stuff. This is big time conspiracy theory. You know, let's try to blame Christianity for every evil that ever happened in the world type of idea. This is this is not accurate. Uh, and again, I'm surprised to, to to hear MacArthur go this route with it. Well, the Bible would never condone taking women as slaves, shaving their heads, and turning them into some kind of uh, abject slavery. That that's that that would never be advocated. The, the The Old Testament elevates women, obviously. So does the New Testament. But let's talk about slavery. Um, the Bible never condones mistreating anyone, not even an animal. Um, the Bible never condones mistreating anyone. I want to make that very clear. The Bible calls for love and kindness and support and encouragement and protection and provision. One of the social constructs in which that occurred in the purposes of God was a form of slavery. The, the word And the fact that slavery and being a servant were so close as shows in the word ebed, which could mean both, which is to say that, that, that the only difference between being a servant who showed up in the morning at 9 o'clock and left at 6 and being a slave was you lived, you had been purchased. What that meant was you had food, you had family, you had protection, um, you, you had provision. Um, this was, for many people, the most secure kind of employment they could have ever hoped for, with a good master, uh, with a faithful master, with a loving master. So this is exactly right. This is what we were talking about in the in the outset and really why, why I brought it up. And want, want to just commend Pastor MacArthur for, for bringing this out. What he's saying is exactly right. And what he's referencing is the passages just like we cited. Slavery outlined in Holy Scripture is just like employment today. For, for those who failed to be an entrepreneur, this was kind of the expectation that everybody would have their own fields, their own farms, their own animals and they would be able to they would be able to produce things on you know on their own they didn't have a word for employee in hebrew uh, but slave in the old testament and the new for that matter might as well be translated employee and that's clear from the exodus passage we started with at the beginning and read out and explained so this is very good, very good answer on, on MacArthur's part, and and he he is a learned Bible scholar, and it shows right here. Let's go on to some other stuff that's not so good. That is the purpose and plan of God. There is a Christian kind of popular doctrine that I um, reject with all my heart, and that is that the church has replaced Israel in the promises of God. It's called supersessionism. I, I don't believe in that. I think that honestly, hate to say this, but I honestly think. It is a latent form of uh, anti-Semitism. To... Okay, <clears throat> right. The church didn't replace Israel. The church is another name for Israel. If you're outside the church, you cannot be saved. Now, let me explain that. It's a bold claim. The word for church is ekklesia in the Greek New Testament. This is the word Christ used. This is the word Paul used, St. Paul used for the church. The word we tra we translate church. And normally, in our day and time, 
we think of the church as a as a building, but in the Bible, the church is not a building. It's the called out ones. Ecclesia. Ek is out from, and lesia comes from a Greek verb called kaleo, which means called. The called out ones. So, Israel, whose father was Abraham, was called out. Abraham is an Old Testament saint. And how was he saved? Hebrews is clear about this. He was saved by faith. Faith in what? Look at Genesis 15. He was saved because he believed God. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. And what did he see in Genesis 15? Sacrifice the pieces of the animal, the smoking pot, and the fire come through those pieces to to essentially say, I'm not going to rehash all of how covenants work. But that was to say that God would be the one who would sacrifice himself if this covenant was broken. And Abraham had faith. That's how people are saved. Faith in Christ. Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. So this this distinction, and this is, we're going to see MacArthur's dispensational understanding of Holy Scripture come through loud and clear here. And it's convoluted and it's confusing. But the church started in Genesis 3. Really, even before that. Faith in the Messiah. Faith in Christ. That's what saves. And so, the church is another name for Israel. Didn't supersede, I'm, I'm not a supersessionist either. The church didn't replace Israel. The church is Israel. That's the point here. Let's move on a little bit more with this. Say that? I, you, you can't tell me that God made promises in the Old Testament to his people Israel concerning his future kingdom and salvation and that he would give them a heart a new heart and a new spirit and he would write his laws in their heart and they they would be saved and he would be their king and they would be his people and all those kingdom prophecies you can't possibly tell me that God didn't mean what he said and that that is one of the reasons I'm an originalist it's very popular in Christianity today to say the Old Testament is interpreted by the New Testament that's not true because if that's the case, then nobody in the Old Testament had any idea what was going on, <laughs> right? Then you've got it. That's not revelation. That's obfuscation. Well, that's just a pile of riddles. Other people say, well, you have to, you have to superimpose Christ, a Christological hermeneutic, over every part of the Old Testament. That's not true either. There's authorial intent. Okay, so here's where MacArthur's right about this. Um, the Old Testament saints weren't in the dark about this. They knew what was going on. They knew that that what the the Jewish theocracy set up in the law was foreshadowing and predicting Christ. And this is it's not complicated, but what was going on was was a foreshadowing of Christ. And and to say that we don't quote unquote superimpose a Christological view over the Old Testament is nonsense because that's precisely what what Christ himself prescribes. Let's go to, right quick to John 5. 
where Christ says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life what did he mean by the scriptures he was talking about the old testament he said the old the old testament and i can i've walked you guys through this in in old podcasts about how the the Old Testament scriptures testify of Christ. It's Christological from front to back. The faith that saved Abraham was faith in the coming Messiah who would be the sacrifice sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And that's where his faith was placed. Probably more compelling is when Luke was talking with some disciples on the Emmaus Road. And he said this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he goes on to say, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's why we interpret the Old Testament Christologically. It, it just, it's just obvious. The authors of the Old Testament knew that they were writing about Christ. They knew this. And, and Jesus himself pointed this out. And he was surprised. I, I suppose as much as God incarnate can be surprised that people didn't understand this. Although he explained it to them Many times, and unfortunately, just it doesn't seem that MacArthur understands this. And again, this is his dispensationalism coming out. This whole notion that the promises of Israel to you know to have the land and and be saved and, and these sorts of things still holds. He doesn't understand that the church began in Genesis three, anticipating the the coming of the Messiah. Um, and we don't have time to outline all of that. But suffice it to say that MacArthur is way off here. And he's getting ready to say something that's uh, uh, pretty astonishing, quite honestly. So really the choices you have. So when you ask me to show the, the variation between Judaism and Christianity, morally, no, there's none. And in terms of God, the same, we don't have the same God as Muslims. Allah is not the same God as Jehovah. We don't have the same gods as any other false religion, but we have the same God as Jews and Christians. He is the one true creator God, the one true living God. He has a seity. That is, he is eternal by his own nature. He is uncreated, the uncreated one. We believe he is, he is more than one person in one God. 
That's why Genesis says, let us make man in our own image. And relationship comes from a God who has relationship within himself. But the distinction between Christianity and Judaism is what we do with Jesus Christ. Um, The writer of Hebrews says, if a sacrifice had been enough to atone for sin, they would have stopped making them. But they never stopped. Morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. You know, basically a priest was a butcher. He had blood up to his waist. I mean, That's he, true. That's he true. was a butcher. He had blood up to his waist. And the frustration of it, even on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, all the bloodletting, uh, and year after year after year after year, this goes on, this goes on, this goes on. You have this most amazing thing. You come to the death of Jesus Christ, and at the death of Christ, the veil in the temple is rent from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies is thrown open. Wow, that's a statement from God, because it couldn't have been ripped by men from the top down, the way to God is open. There's no more barriers because a, a suitable sacrifice has been found. This is the Lamb of God. And amazingly, soon after that, the whole sacrificial system ends because th- that's the final sacrifice. And God validates that sacrifice by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is a provable historical fact. So I think that's the issue. Um, it's what do you do with Jesus. That's the issue of Christianity. And I would just say, I have such a love for Israel. I mean, all, all the people I love the most are Jewish, from Abraham, you know, <laughs> to, the, to the, the Apostle John, who wrote the last book in the Bible. Um, I have the same passion that Paul had. He could almost wish himself accursed for Israel's sake, because they, they have, um, they have a, a knowledge of God, but but, but they don't know him because he can only be known through Christ. And that's the Christian message. This is Judaism's culmination. So I, I don't see Judaism and Christianity as antithetical. I see them as perfectly complementary. So that. Okay. Striking to hear MacArthur admit this. This is really the line of dispensationalism that the the promises to the Jews will be fulfilled and irrespective of whether or not they accept Christ as the Messiah is is really the line in, in dispensational theology. So there's there's a couple of ways you can be saved. You can uh, you, you can be called out by God as one of the elect and and be saved that way by faith by be having faith given to you in Christ, or you can convert to, to Judaism. And <laughs> this is what dispensationalism does. It kind of ends up talking out of both sides of its mouth. MacArthur proclaims that Jews and Christians worship the same God. We we, we don't. Not not even close. I mean, if, if we're going to define God, we define God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in one uh, the Jews don't do this, not 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 in their current incarnation. The Old Testament saints understood this, I believe. But so we don't we don't worship the same God, and and I'm not yeah, right. This is just MacArthur's dispensationalism uh, coming out here. Uh, it's just, it's and he brings it out here on the Ben Shapiro Sunday special for. All, all the world to see, and it, and it doesn't really make sense because in in one sense he's saying that the Jews rejected Christ, 
as the Messiah, as God, but yet they still worship the, the same God. Doesn't really make a, a lot of sense. And I'm just honestly not quite sure what to do with the rest of it. Now, in a sense, he does redeem himself later on in, the, in this interview to say that Jews who had faith in Christ in the Old Testament understood that there was a coming Messiah that was going to be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, etc. You know, and, and again, the, the Jews were happy to make these sacrifices. This was the foreshadowing of the Messiah to come that would be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And so if, if in that sense, Old Testament Jews and New you know, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints worship the same God. There, I could agree, but um, as far as Ben Shapiro agreeing that God is uh, God is one in three persons, he's not going to agree to that. Uh, so, so I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm very at best very confused uh, by what MacArthur is doing here, and I think it's driven by his dispensationalism. I, in fact, I'm convinced of that grew up in that tradition it, it grew up um, was exposed to that tradition uh, by virtue of the fact that I went to Dallas Seminary these sorts of things so um, yeah not 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 really what I was hoping for here f- from MacArthur I, I really thought he would be able to bring out some more of the distinctions between Judaism and Christianity at any rate we have got to go for this week uh, Next week, we're going to bring you a true anti-Semite. Uh, I talked about it last week a little bit. Uh, we just didn't get to it. Uh, this was more, far more interesting to me. And maybe something even more interesting will come up than than this uh, schismatic anti-Semite. But uh, uh, hopefully we'll be able to bring him up at least a little bit next week. Please give to the Kenya Wall Project uh, $50. And... Uh, Help us kick that domino over there in Kenya at Kibos Hope Academy where these children are being educated in the Christian faith. Uh, donate your $50. Don't forget to listen to us on KNNA The Cross uh, in Nebraska. Download their app, listen to all their, the wonderful podcasts they have on there, and we'll see you next week.